You've seen their TV shows. You've watched their webcasts. Now, Partigan and Stapes invite you to Poker in the Ears. Hello, my babies, and welcome to Poker in the Ears. I am Uncle Daddy Joe Stapleton. Here's my work wife, James Hardigan. With a tear in his eye, realizing that this will be the last time we speak for eight weeks. It's I'll see you in September. You know Actually, it'll be August, but whatever. Same sentiment coming up on today's show. It's our 2018 pre-WSOP season finale. What does this mean? It means house cleaning. <laughs> All the stuff we didn't get to until now, including reviewing Solo, a Star Wars story. I actually took you literally there and thought you were going to start cleaning your house. Actually, I am having the carpets cleaned here. Uh, more on that later on, believe it or not. Um, yeah, we got to do Solo, a Star Wars yep. story. It means we're going to have a, cl- a cliffhanger, a season-ending cliffhanger, because we need to leave you wanting more. Do we, do we actually have a cliffhanger? No, we don't. Okay, okay, cool. Oh, no, I should have said, said, you'll have to wait to find out. That's right. Wait to see if there's a cliffhanger. Maybe there'll be one. Uh, It means Poker Movie Mondays. (laughs) We we are reviewing The Gambler. And I complied with the title, and I rewatched this movie on Monday. Oh, that's, you know what? Hold on. I watched it on Thursday, but believe I usually watch these movies on like Mondays or Tuesdays because I'm doing it last minute. I watched it like on a normal Thursday night, totally sober, had like a mandate with my best friend, had tacos. I fancy uh, your I'm, chances in Superfan versus Stapes. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm still going to lose because now it was almost a week ago that I uh. saw it. And I've, a lot has happened. <laughs> between now and then, including for Poker Movie Mondays, we're going to revisit a teeny tiny bit of Molly's game because I played with some of the real-life players from Molly's game on Poker Night Live last night. Uh, so uh, I figure it's worth touching on some of the stuff from the movie that's sort of linked up to that. Also coming up in our season finale today, live poker recaps and name-dropping which, uh, by the way, those two things are going to end up being the same thing in this case because I played in a celebrity home game outside of a TV show. I'm hosting one on TV. Uh, and also, the, the season finale on my show, James, is going to be sick. I'm so excited. Sorry, I thought the season finale was last night. I thought we... No. Oh, you've got one week to go. I've got one more week because what happened was, do you remember they pushed the start of the show? Yes. By a week when we couldn't get any guests for our first episode. <laughs> uh, oh God, boy, what a fun 13 weeks it's been. Uh, so yeah, so I'll uh, I'll be name dropping a little bit later on, which you know, James, is something that I was going to say. Why will this be different to any other podcast we've ever done? Correct, correct. Uh, but uh, just a, well, I'm going to drop a name right now, which is not a name that is really going to mean much to. Uh, to many people, but to some, I just want to say congratulations to my old podcast host, uh, Scott Hoff, who worked on um, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, and it won six Tony Awards. I was going to say two uh, things on this. First of all, I think yeah. a lot of people do know Hoff, not just because of your old podcast, but obviously Scott did plenty of stuff in the poker world, including season two of The Big Game, and everyone's right. seen those shows on right. Stars TV. The second thing is I had completely forgotten that Scott was an exec on this stage show. Can you put in a good word and can you get me tickets for the new year? Uh, for the New York one or for no for, London? for the London one? Yeah, I'll see what I can do. I like I I have never hit him up for tickets, so I, I feel like I have at least one favor in there somewhere. Um, the the reason why I bring this up is there is some connection, 
to the Tony Awards, but the uh, sorry to the Poker World and Scott Still, of course. But uh, I was talking to him about it, and he's been working on a project with Tommy Lee Jones, and he said that night he got a congratulatory FaceTime audio call. <laughs> From Tommy because Tommy's not that good with technology, uh, so apparently he couldn't find you know the the FaceTime video button. Uh, so I guess he should have done a hard target search of every gas station, <laughs> residence, warehouse, farmhouse, henhouse, outhouse, and doghouse in the iPhone oh, area. Nice callback, nice callback. <laughs> Congratulations, Mr. Huff, for your Tony Award. So what's he got now to get the the Oscar, the um, well, Emmy? Well, I asked him about this because I didn't want to. Basically, we have to be careful about the way he worded it. And he said, unless you're the actual financier slash producer of the show, that, that he Joe, did a lot of work on the I show. You and I both know that that doesn't stop anyone else. Yes, Virtually every it, single person I know in the UK TV industry claims to have won a BAFTA because they at some point had some minor role in a show that one year got a BAFTA award. And in the States... Every single person who watches TV seems to have won a fucking Emmy. Yeah, so Scott and I are cut from the same cloth in this respect, and that, like, we would both be, and that's why I asked him, he would be really embarrassed if someone said Scott won a Tony Award. Okay. Something Scott worked on uh, won a Tony Award. So, of course, he's very proud, but he's not at that stage yet where he's willing to take uh, credit for it. I'm going to continue right on with the name dropping. So when uh, Jerry Cantrell of Alice in Chains played on uh, Poker Night Live, he took a liking to me and started inviting me over to his house. So let me get this right. 12 weeks of shows. How many players each week? Uh, four, uh, four to five. Four to uh, five. So let's say yeah. roughly 55, 60 players. One of them liked you. That's amazing. That's a great <laughs> hit rate, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know what? I'm not even going to defend myself there. I'm just going <laughs> to let you have that one. Uh, so Jerry's been having me over to his house. And on this last particular uh, night, he was having people over. Uh, his his friend who sort of coordinates the game says, look, if you can make it, um, you should come because Dane Cook is going to be playing and uh, Jay Davis and Jay does all the booking at the Laugh Factory here in L.A., which is the second biggest comedy club and second by like a nose. Uh, you know, they're right down the block from each other. Uh, do you know who Dane Cook is? No. Uh, James? OK, he's a really huge stand up comic uh, and probably the stand up comic whose albums I listen to the most uh, in my entire life. And so. Here's the most stupid name dropping, which I didn't want to do on social media, but I will do on my podcast. That night, I had to choose between going to play poker with Dane Cook at Jerry Cantrell's house. Oh, and he said Jay Leno might also be there. Um, now, him I know. Or um, one of the Atlanta Braves left tickets for me to the Dodgers game. Uh, that night. So I was like, man, what a fucking douchebag I am. I'm like, I'm so I'm going to be like, what should I do tonight, guys? Should I go to the Dodgers game because I like one of the Atlanta Braves like invited me or should I go play poker at Jerry Cantrell's house? With I'm so going to say, considering your previously recorded thoughts on most sport, the poker game is surely going to be an easy win here. This isn't even a race situation. This is a hidden domination. Well, guess what? It's, it wasn't exactly a poker metaphor because I just did both. I went to the baseball game in true L.A. Dodger fashion. And I did left you fail like a, at both? Uh, well, yeah, because I left the baseball game in the fourth inning. Yeah. Um, we had great seats, by the way, right behind home plate. Uh, and then I rushed over to uh, Jerry's house. Now, this is one of these celebrity home games where the buy-in is only $100. Oh, that's nice. Uh, yeah, which is fine. But um, 
the blinds go up. Every, we played 11 handed. <laughs> yeah. We played 11 handed at a gigantic, like, you remember that fucking table from like the Michael Keaton Batman where they're like sitting like a hundred <laughs> yards from each other. It's just gigantic. has to deal this table. Well, the, the deal, you know, you pass the it's deal around deal. Like, oh, man. like a home game. And so cards are flying off the table. They're getting stuck. People are just whipping. So you get about three hands per hour and you're playing 20 minute levels and it's like 90 minutes of rebuys. Oh, so you basically ran a, you ran a, you ran a single table tournament. It wasn't a cash game. It's not a cash game. It's a, it's a sit and go. And so I'm in for a hundred dollars. And of course, because I'm late, I start with like. 17 big blinds and then by the time i rebuy i'm down to like i'm like it's a hundred dollars for 14 big blinds now it's a hundred dollars for eight big blinds so i'm into this game for four hundred dollars just out of interest does it become a freeze out at any point or can you literally rebuy until the point that it's heads up no it gets to be a freeze out and this is my whole thing is that i wanted to be at least in this tournament still by the time the freeze out was over because i'm sitting with one of my comedy idols and also uh this dude that that you know if i can buddy up to him can actually help me out of course this is a huge networking opportunity so correct do what the guy does at the end of uh, deal fold those aces and let him win i will i didn't let anyone win but i did i did fold ace queen on the uh the like the bubble of the rebuy period because i was like i can't afford because there's an add-on also And so I was like, I can't afford to go broke <laughs> on this last hand. And because, you know, on the last hand, everyone just goes all in. Yeah. I was like, I can't go broke and and add on. So I folded like ace queen suited on the last hand of wow. the rebuy level um, of the four times I got it in. Whatever it was, I was in for 400 bucks. So that means I will have gotten in one, two, three, four different times, including after the every single time I got it in against kings every single time. And I was not ahead any of the times and I did not suck out any of the times. The good news is that once the game thinned out a little bit uh, and the, uh, the it happened to be that the comedy booker was sitting right next to me, a few of the people in the game were like, hey, Jay, put Joe on at the Laugh Factory. He's a comedian. Put him on at the Laugh Factory. And I was like, eh, uh, like yeah. Eh, yeah, look, it's not really my style to be like uh, haranguing. Did he put you on at the Laugh Factory? He gave me his card and said to contact him anytime. I'm going to the Laugh Factory tonight to meet up with him. Okay. Um, and to uh, so you to, didn't to, do the whole classic swingers thing where you're like, call, you can't call him the next day. You got to leave it till the day after that, and then you end up leaving 14 voicemail messages for him. Yes, I, I waited about six days actually, which is the the, <laughs> the exact rule in swingers. Uh, as long as we're gonna round out my my name dropping here. Uh, last night on Poker Night Live, we had our real life Molly's game night. Uh, so we had this guy named Reagan Silber, who I think is uh, legitimately a billionaire, like a real estate mogul, uh, who's uh, heavily referenced in the book. He does have a uh, an alias in the book, uh, Andy Bellin is like probably the main character from the book. I've read his book, Poker Nation. Poker Nation. Yeah, yeah, Poker Nation. So, um, and then we had this guy named Irv Gadion, who is one of the East Coast Molly's Game guys. And uh, I got to tell you, these guys were an, were an absolute blast. We had a really great time. They told me a lot of stories when the cameras were off uh, about uh, Molly's Game. I'll say this. None of them are fans of, of Tobey Maguire. Uh they so much so, so that they like a few. The, I tried to ask like, a few questions, like "What'd you think of Michael Sarah's? and they all clammed up. Right. Uh, 
Just none of don't them go really, there. Don't yeah, open it was old wounds. A lot of don't go there stuff. I will say that it, during the commercial breaks, the stories were amazing. Um, Did any of them actually say what they thought of the movie? Um, it, for a lot of them, they basically said like they were too close to it. Right. Uh, they were too close to it to really be able to enjoy the movie and that they, you know, as much as they could appreciate some of the performances and the writing that it, it was it was just constant analysis from them. Oh, and we had the dealer from Molly's game. Um, again, he's not heavily featured in the movie, but in the book, Diego, quote unquote, whose real name is Manny, was like a huge part of the book. Uh, you know, he and Molly end up partnering up um, very early on in the book. Right. And. He told a really great story about how one of the the players in the game, Steve Brill, basically um, what the guys told me is that once they saw Molly and Manny uh, driving really nice vehicles um, and people realized how much money they were actually taking out of the game, that's when things like sort of some of the the crabbier people – had an issue, started to have an issue with them, and that one of the players, after Manny dealt him a bad beat, went downstairs and smashed in Manny's windshield and slashed all of the tires on his brand new Mercedes. Um, So yeah, just a really fun show. Uh, Great stories from those guys. Last little tiny bit of name dropping. The season finale for the show, James. I'm so excited. So Josh Molina, who you're a fan of. Huge West Wing fan. Huge fan of the Molina. And Molina is a guy that's not, uh, to me is not unlike his West Wing character in real life. He's extremely well spoken, very funny guy. And he was big in like behind one of those poker shows, right? Celebrity Poker Club or whatever it was called. He was actually he, like the exec on that. He created Celebrity Poker Showdown. That's the one. And and so he said to us, "Hey, let me book your final your finale for you. Don't worry, I'm going to hook you guys up." So, Josh Molina has hooked us up huge. Uh, he's getting this guy, a, a rapper named Hoodie Allen, who uh, I know you're probably not huge in the rap world. Hoodie Allen's got 1.29 million Twitter followers and apparently is a poker fan because when I tweeted that he's going to be on the show, he was like, hopefully Stapes is doing commentary. Um, obviously, he doesn't know I play at the table. So we got Hoodie Allen. We got um, David Wayne, who is, uh, I don't know if you know the name off the top of your head, James, but he is one of my biggest He's comedy like a writer, director. He wrote and directed Wet Hot American Summer, Wanderlust, The Ten, Role Models, uh, and he's from the, a comedy troupe called Stella that I have been following since the late 90s. Uh, he is just one of my all-time comedy idols, one of the biggest influences in my comedy life. So I'm, I was already super excited about that. And then Josh Molina James got us John Hamm. Wow, Don play. Draper himself is going to be playing in your poker game. Yeah, and we have not had like a lot of legitimate A-listers on the show, so this is going to be really big for us. Hopefully he pulls through. Sometimes these guys, you know, they, they, they cancel and stuff, so fingers crossed on that. But I'm very excited. And so when I was at the Dodger game Friday night, they put a uh, – they put a, a thing up on the, you know, on the, on the Jumbotron saying, hey, next Sunday is Father's Day. Uh, if you bring your dad to the game, you can have a catch on the field with your dad. And I was like, you know what? I should fly my dad out next Sunday and we'll go to the Dodger game and my parents can come see the finale. This sounds of one, of, like one of those things which was a great idea at the time and I bet you've regretted it since you, you pulled the trigger. You have no fucking clue, James, what a nightmare this has been. No, I Get do. In my, 
I've heard enough stories about your parents to know that this is going to be a complete logistical and emotional nightmare. I text my parents from the game, which, of course, is late on the East Coast. I wake up the next day to like 700 emails and phone calls and texts about this. I call my dad and he goes, of course, your mother's not here to deal with this. And I'm like, Dad, this should not be something that has to be dealt with. I'm trying to do something nice if it's fun. And if it's stress-free, I'll fly you guys out. This is not something that requires dealing with. I need you to calm down. So I end up booking the flights for my parents. And um, then they call me the next day after I've booked it. And they're like, we want to stay longer. (laughs) I booked them. I booked them flights for Saturday to Wednesday. I'm not even going to be here Saturday. I'm going to be in Vegas uh, doing a charity tournament. I get back Sunday morning. And they were like, we want to stay from Saturday to Saturday so that we can go to San Diego. They want to go to the San Diego Zoo. They want to take the train to San Diego. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, they have to take a shuttle from Albany to New York City and then a flight with a layover to get to here. And then I got to deal with – I'm not even here that I got to get them from Long Beach to Los Angeles. And then I got to figure out how to get them – it was a $300 change fee. It's been – a fucking nightmare, James. You called it, but hopefully when I'm having a catch with my dad it will be on worth the it. field <laughs> and, he, and he punches me in the stomach afterward, it will be worth it. That's what's been going on for me. I played some live poker at the bike. On I got the subject murdered. of the bike, have yeah. you seen that video of the horrible angle shoot and even more horrible floor ruling? I've heard about it, but I guess what what's what what uh, I guess the key here is that the guy who's involved is a producer for yeah. Live at the Bike. One thing I would say is this highlights the danger of when people involved in the production of a TV show or the running of a game play in the game themselves. But if you t- even if you take that out of the equation, say, well, why shouldn't he play? He's not getting any extra information because he should never have been put in this awkward spot where the floor basically says. Just to recap what happens here, um, Ryan Feldman is the player in question who runs the the live stream at the bike. Yeah. He has a full house on the river. He checked to his opponent, a player called Armenian Mike, who's already racked his chips because he says he's going to sit out when it's his big blind. And he pushes his rack forward into the pot, 10,000 into a pot of about 900. The dealer verbally announces all in and Ryan snap calls, at which point Armenian Mike pulls the rack back and says, I was just joking. He says it wasn't an all-in, it wasn't a legitimate bet, He's he, he slid the rack forward across the line into the pot as a joke. Ryan calls for a ruling, and the floor is like, well, do, do you want his chips? You know, you can take them if you want them. And it's like, no, the floor needs to make a definitive ruling, which is, sir, that was a bet, it goes as an all-in, you've lost the pot, your chips go to your opponent. They put it on Ryan. Oh, I didn't yes. even realize that. I thought that they just ruled that they that uh, yes, he was in fact joking. I'm glad to hear the details of the story because I like Ryan. Uh, I thought that that when I heard the producer of Live at the Bike was involved, I thought he might have been the one doing the angle shoot. No. I didn't know it was going to be Ryan, or else no. I wouldn't have suspected that. So, um, man, what a horrible spot! So, what is what is Feldman end up doing? I think he ends up taking the 10k, but it takes about eight minutes to resolve, and it's because of just really weak, lily-livered intervention on the part of the floor. And I know that wherever possible, you know, 
casino staff don't like to interfere. They don't like to intervene. They don't want to be seen to make rulings and judgments over the players. But this is a situation where as the only objective party in the conversation, they have to make that judgment. And that ruling has to be clear, concise, and not put any pressure on any of the players involved to make the final ruling. Yeah, no, heads are probably going to roll about this. I, yeah, I, that's so weird because I was just there. Well, what day did this happen? I must. I'm not been, sure. Must I saw the, the, must I, been the day after I was there. I saw the video over the weekend, but it was an interesting conversation point, and interesting to see so many people weigh in. And obviously, many of the uh, poker sites like Poker News have picked up on it and have also printed some of the reaction from poker pros and other tournament staff. Uh, their view. On the matter, uh, Joe, we have got a lot to get through. We have got two sure. films to talk about, two movies with a gambling theme. That's right. Uh, we are basically <laughs> claiming that the brief Sabak scenes in Solo make it a poker movie. So let's talk about the latest Star Wars flick. And one thing we should say, Joe, and this applies to both Solo and The Gambler that we're going to review later on, we're talking about the film in detail. There will be spoilers. If you have not seen Solo, two things. If you don't give a shit, you can keep (laughs) listening or you can scrub forward. If you have every intention of watching this film and don't want it ruined by spoilers in inverted commas, again, scrub parts this point in the podcast. If. If you haven't seen Solo, which, by the way, makes you part of the very large majority because it's tanking at the box office, it is not doing well, uh, then skip it. But by the way, it's a fucking prequel. You know what happens. There's no drama. There's always a problem with prequels. There's always that problem with backstory. Um, Just to give the background to this film, because I think it's important, because it informs my opinion of the movie. Uh, When they announced, when Disney first bought Lucasfilm, this film had already been in development. George Lucas had commissioned it back in like 2011, 2012. He had Lawrence Kasdan and his son working on a screenplay for a Han Solo origin film. When Disney bought Lucasfilm, this was put on the back burner. This was not meant to be one of the original Star Wars stories. But what happened is Josh Trank, who was due to do the Boba Fett movie, parted ways because the Fantastic Four movie was awful. He slagged off the studio. It was a case of, he's going to struggle to find work in this town again. And so they then greenlit the Solo movie, based on the Kasdan screenplay, directed by the guys who did 21 Jump Street in the Lego movie, Phil oh, Lord and Chris Miller. Let's talk about that for a second. I, uh, I remember when they got fired off the movie uh, thinking that, well, you know what? Maybe they wouldn't have had the right tone for the solo movie, but having seen the Ron Howard version, man, I would have liked really liked to see what they would have done with the movie. Well, here's what's so weird. They were six months into principal photography. This film had been in production for 90% of its shoot when Kathleen Kennedy intervened, realizing that it wasn't working out the way they wanted, the Kasdans were pissed off because Lord and Miller were deviating from the screenplay, they were encouraging improvisation, and they decided very late in the day to ditch these guys. And obviously they then took an exec credit, paving the way for Ron Howard to come in and take over and finish the movie. What Ron Howard then did was reshoot 70% of the film. So only- I was going to say there was I couldn't I couldn't pick out any particular thing in that movie that would have been 
from uh, from those two guys. Uh, maybe some of the Woody Harrelson stuff, but it really felt very Ron Howardy. So that it makes did. sense. And one of the uh, byproducts of that was that Michael Kenneth Williams, best known as Omar in The Wire, he had been cast as the gangster, the main villain in this movie. And in the version that you will have seen at the cinema, that role is played by Paul Bettany. Because when Ron Howard came to do the reshoots, reshoots Michael Kenneth Williams was no longer available, so the part was recast with Paul Bettany. And all those scenes were redone. Um, when you consider all of the stories that were coming out of the production of this movie, when you track and recite its very troubled production history, my expectations were very low. This was a troubled production of a story that didn't need to be told and I had no desire to see. So what I was presented with when I sat down and watched it at the cinema a few weeks ago was actually a surprise because it was better than I had any expectation for it to be. I had low expectations also, but I just thought it was at best fine. Uh, Look, Han Solo is a uh, – I'm not – this is well-worn territory, but like Han Solo to me – Han Solo and Indiana Jones were two things that I grew up with that I woke up every day and emulated these characters and pretended to be – uh, these characters and for me they were pretty much interchangeable guys to be honest as a kid um and so this is su- a character with which i look back and a lot of reverence and it was going to be difficult for anyone to live up so i was able to take that with a grain of salt i think the kid was fine uh at it do i think he was amazing no no i just overall though didn't think uh, the 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 part captured any of the charm. The, the character was fine, but I didn't think it captured any of the charm of the Han Solo that we saw in the original Star Wars movies. And one friend of mine is like, well, he's not Han Solo yet. This is, you know, on his way to becoming that guy that you saw in those later movies. And from a logical perspective, that makes sense uh, that he wouldn't have developed into that guy just yet. But I don't think you can. I don't want to see a movie about about that person who no. isn't Han Solo and, yet. And I again, th- to make it clear, this is a completely unnecessary film. I have no desire to see it ever again. But it was a decent adventure story set in the Star Wars universe with some decent set pieces. It entertained me. And, you know, I, I can't fault it for that. I enjoyed it more than I enjoyed any of the prequels, the official prequels, episodes one, two and three. Yes, uh, I would. I would. Uh, I, th- I thought the third one was uh, was no, all right. Trust um, me, revisit it. It's shit. Uh, that's the one with the big Jedi battle, right? Well, it's not really a big Jedi battle. It's basically they all get shot down like punks, and then there's a really... no, no, no. The, what's what's the one with the huge battle in like the arena where it's like everybody's Attack fighting of the each Clones. Other. You're talking Is about that... the Battle of Geonosis from Attack of the Clones. That's from the second one. Yes. Okay, that's that's the one I, I kind of like then. Um, okay. I mean, that's how forgettable these movies are. Um, the fact that you are even considering Attack of the Clones as a semi-decent film really makes me question your critical faculties. I didn't I didn't say as a semi-decent film. What I'm saying is like I just didn't like uh, at the time I didn't mind that one uh, because uh, the first the, the Phantom Menace was really really terrible. Anyway, I like I, I just think that it didn't really feel like Han Solo to me. I will admit that it was a, a fun, like an okay adventure story. They should have just made it a different character altogether. I don't see why we couldn't have seen a movie where Han Solo is brash and charming and a bit of a ballsy mo- mother effer uh, and d- from the get go, even though he hasn't been through anything yet. I don't see why 
he couldn't have just been born that way. Why he couldn't have been like it, it just I just wasn't interested in seeing him develop. Um, I thought that uh, uh, Lando, despite Donald Glover being insanely talented, was like really weak in some of the scenes and seen. He seemed like he I could sometimes he felt like he was doing a Billy D. Williams impression. Yes, he did. I agree. And it um, wasn't consistent. It wasn't consistent. And some of the scenes, he really nailed it. And some of the scenes, I'm like, this feels like a Pepsi commercial. <laughs> um, I think I prefer it when they do Star Wars spinoffs that don't feature any of the kind of principal characters from the uh, original trilogy yeah. or from the from the later movies. Um, let's talk about the poker scenes in this movie. Okay. Because uh, Sabak is a game which obviously has elements of poker in it. I'm assuming that the rules are slightly different and that string bets are allowed because there was a lot of calling this and raising that and a lot of I'll see your 2000 and raise you another 3000 and my spaceship that I don't actually own. Yeah, I uh, believe, uh, James, I have to, given that I've played poker with so many Hollywood people over the last 13 weeks, um, people still don't know that th what a string bet is. So I don't want to call someone up, but on my show two weeks ago, someone was like, I see your bet and raise you. I mean, they said that. And wow. this is well, people they, that's they live in the movies. Right. And they play poker regularly. And so um, two people at the table actually did that. And we let the first one fly. And so I don't I don't know that that the people who write these scenes and or direct them. And I also think that having spoken to um, the woman who produced Hell or High Water, she knew there was a big mistake in her poker scene because she loves playing poker and she was like we just did it anyway because it's just more dramatic and most of the audience doesn't know uh especially like you said james in this universe we can just say that's eh, part of the game of sabak yes the one thing i really liked about this film actually is the fact that lando obviously cheats at the game he has the equivalent of an ace up his sleeve and in the final game where han wins the millennium falcon he removes that card meaning that he's able to cheat lando doesn't cheat which gives a nuance to the whole idea of han winning the ship fair and square so when they meet again in empire strikes back and lando is very much asking about his ship and han responds hey you want it to be fair and square remember suddenly you realize that well actually the, the frostiness of their relationship and what happened in the past very much informs the the latest the later relationship between these two guys yes and i do think that they so uh, i do think they do a good job of setting that up and i also think that they do a good job a bad job i should say okay so remember how a second ago i complained that he wasn't enough han solo yeah like but then they they make this story uh where it very much uh informs the character and his uh reluctance to want to join in on anything to commit to anything because woody harrelson fucks him over that explains oh this is why we sort of have this reluctant hero uh that we see in the later movies. But then again, the issue I had was if this is his first adventure, then why is this seem to be the thing that most heavily influences what his character ends up being in the later movies when this isn't, these aren't the events that directly precede that we assume that more things are going to happen to Han Solo. Of course. Well, we know at the end of the film that they're off to take a job for that gangster on Tatooine. Obviously, Jabba the Hutt. We know that job is not going to work out well. Um, right. And that seems, but like, 
t- like t- I like I hate to be like this, but like this kid's what twenty five. Yeah, and Harrison Ford's forty. No, in the first in, film, he's in his mid thirties. We're about ten okay. years away from the events of the first uh, film, I think. Right. So is he supposed to have been on the run from Jabba for eight years? Potentially. I guess so. Fine. I don't that know. That would explain just why all... every bounty hunter is looking for him. Or maybe he did a few jobs for Jabba that went well, and then suddenly it all went south. We. Okay. I'm sure there'll be spin-off comic books. I'm sure there'll be books. Uh, talking of spin-offs, by the way, a little bit of controversy surrounding the cameo at the end of the film. I quite liked the reveal at the end, that obviously we discover that the big villain, the big boss, the character that Paul Bettany plays, is working for Maul. Now, a few Star Wars fans and we find ourselves referencing Richard Orford for the second week running, had a huge <laughs> issue with this. He felt, well, this massively disrupts the timeline because in his mind, Darth Maul was killed at the end of Phantom Menace, not aware that in the Clone Wars animated TV series, we learn about what happened they, to Maul. They glue him back together with Absolutely. Jedi glue, right? Well, he's basically equi- brought back with, with, uh, with, with, with robotic legs. There's a whole subplot about him wanting revenge against Obi-Wan Kenobi, getting revenge against Darth Sidious, his former master, who's now abandoned him and moved on to a new apprentice with Count Dooku. He appears again later in the Star Wars Rebels TV series. Richard's point is that shit should not have anything to do with the movies. I disagree because it's all part of the official canon. It's all part of the official Star Wars franchise. And I would like it if Marvel did the same and started bringing the characters from their TV shows, characters like Daredevil, into the cinematic universe, into like the Avengers films. Um, I don't have a problem with it. But I guess it you, would wait be... a second. You think there should be more goddamn characters in Avengers: Affinity War? Have you seen that movie, no, James? No, I haven't. I'm saying that let's bring the good ones from the TV <laughs> TV series into the cinema and lose some of the crap ones from the movies completely. Um, what I am saying with Star Wars, though, is I didn't have an issue. It was I thought quite a neat little twist. I like the fact they brought back Ray Park uh, to provide the face, and it's Sam Witwer who does the voice in the TV shows. Uh, providing the vocal performance. But for people who only watch the movies, I guess that one was a bit of a head-scratcher. You know what? I didn't even care. I only watched (laughs) the movies, and I just... I didn't even care. I was like... I honestly thought that they were taking such liberties with timelines that I thought that maybe it even was happening before... Darth Maul had been cut in half. No, because this is clearly in the... This is post-Order 66. This is obviously during the era of the Empire. Uh, whereas obviously Phantom Menace was decades beforehand. Yeah, I was like, what, whatever. Whatever, I don't whatever. Really care. Uh, so in summary, I didn't mind it. I thought it was a perfectly entertaining story, but it's not a film that I can see myself watching again and again. When I saw Rogue One, I immediately wanted to revisit it. Same with The Last Jedi, same with Force Awakens. This, I'm like, I enjoyed that. Oh. Rogue One, I really fucking love. That's been my favorite of anything post-Jedi. Um, didn't you also, really quick, technically, wasn't it very dark? Like, I had a hard time seeing and I saw it in 2D. I uh, saw a 2D I, presentation, which was, I'm, I would say, yes, it had a dark look to it. I didn't find it too dark. I don't know whether yeah. that was the particular cinema that you saw the movie. Yeah, you never know. I mean, I saw it in, like, some small town you know it was it was a multiplex you know like a shopping mall kind of deal but it was you know it was 
that's part of the reason why I like seeing movies in LA, especially at the ArcLight, because you know you pay a premium, but they really care about the movies because half the time the fucking cast and crew are watching in the theater, so they they take time to make sure it's all being projected properly. So in I summary, Joe, is this a for me? It's a three star movie. Is it a three star or a two star for you? It's it's a two to two and a half star movie for me. I'd never revisit it. Can't really recommend it. Walked out being like, meh, yeah, just didn't really do it for me. Poker in the ears. Joe, a quick hiatus from all the film chat because I'm pleased to say that visiting the PokerStars London office today is the newest member of Team PokerStars Pro. So I thought it was worth grabbing her in the booth for a quick chat. Please welcome to Poker in the Ears, Muskan Sati. Hi. Hey, Muskan, what's up? Hi, nothing. You tell me what's happening. I'm so happy to be here. It's in such an amazing office. Well, yeah, you you fucking damn well should be. You know how many people want to be team pros for Poker Stars? Congratulations. <laughs> Jesus, that's what an accomplishment. Thank you. It's a, it's a dream come true. Now, of course, Muskan, most people will remember you from Shark Cage. And obviously, most of the people who are listening to the podcast watch the TV shows. And I was just working out in my head, it's nearly four years ago now. It doesn't seem like it, but it was it was summer 2014 that we yeah, shot that. Yeah, can you imagine? It's still so fresh in my head. And that's when I started playing poker. So that's exactly when my journey started. And it's because of like such a crazy start. I couldn't look back and I just kept going, going. And I had like this dream that I want to you know, uh, take this seriously. And Shakish made that happen for me, to be honest. Now, for the sake of people with bad memories, yes, Joe, I'm looking at you. Uh, (laughs) You played in season one of Shark Cage. You were in Barcelona and Liv Bari was in your heat because you'd met Liv at the World Series, if not that summer than the summer before. You'd already met Liv before. Uh, You also had Mike McDonald. And I think I'm right in saying you sent Timex to the Shark Cage. (laughs) Yeah, I was so scared of him because I used to play on PokerStars and I always knew like this name Timex that plays on it. And even all my guy friends were always so scared of him. So I was always, always so scared of him. But when I met him on the table, I was like, okay, I have to, have to like at least try and bluff him. (laughs) And you did. I think that's a great strategy to try to bluff a a player like Mike McDonald because when they're up against someone who doesn't necessarily play uh, their version of GTO, I think it can be you can get lucky and confuse them, and you, you did exactly that. That's just. But he's such an amazing poker player. And also to meet Liv, it was like so nice because I had my fan moment with her at WSOP just a year before. And I'd gone up to her and I was like, listen, I used to watch you. You're the only female poker player I know. And like, I look up to you so much and like things like that. So Maria Ho and Liv Buri were the two female poker players I went up to and introduced myself and said that I want to learn the game. And and, you know, I just seen them on YouTube videos. So for me, that was like, you know, the, those were my um, like those were the women I wanted to become. Yeah. Like, you know, I wanted to be that and I wanted to play poker professionally and, you know, do it so elegantly like they do. Yeah. So to follow the timeline, having got into the game of poker and having met those guys at the World Series, having then applied to be on Shark Cage and made it <laughs> onto the show. Spoiler alert, you didn't win your heat. You got heads up against Mike Tyndall, who, by the way, 
got Mike McDonald drunk by giving him one beer. Uh, you know, obviously we were all rooting for you. At that point, we already had one qualifier in the final. Uh, Susanna had fallen short to Griffin Benger and unfortunately you fell short to, uh, uh, to Mike Tyndall. And then I guess in a way we kind of lose track of you for a while. What happened after that? Where does the story go from there? So to be honest, like I was so sad that why I didn't like win that. What what was I even doing there? I've never played poker in my life. I was like in completely contrast uh, sort of a background. And for me to be on a show like that or to start playing poker was really life changing. And then so I I was uh, back home playing some tournaments. I got signed by an Indian side. I played with them for one year and then I got into charity. So then I started playing independently and whatever I was winning I was dedicating up to 50% into uh, things that I do I do like charity for dogs and other stuff that my mum started and it's just to keep that going and to me like I really feel close to myself and I feel really alive when I play poker so I just wanted that going for myself I just wanted to I didn't want to um peak too high or you know be too low I just wanted to be balanced and take it really slow so that I'm here I'm here to play for like many, many, many years. <laughs> you know, I just want to learn the game. And, and to be honest, I'm a student for life. And every time I learn new things about it, and it's just um, amazing. It's like it's like a life lesson, you know, yeah. to learn how to play poker in a way. Muscan, what was the, the, the path from Shark Cage to Team Pro? Like what happened in between to sort of build your poker resume? So I really, really want to give, uh, I feel that, I want to give this credit to, you know, the the Indian government because they gave me an award. And I feel that that was one changing moment as well, because, you know, when I was pursuing this, I felt like maybe I'm not on the right path. Maybe I should have really, you know, taken up something more, something better. And maybe this isn't just me trying to. Um, maybe I have like, you know, I'm just like, I want to be poker player. I just don't, I'm not on the right path or something. So I try to get myself off a lot of times. And, but then I kept going back to the game because that's where I found solace and peace and, and, uh, you know, so, um, I was apparently the first female poker player of India, a professional poker player, someone who to be a part of a, you know, team or to work with a poker side and endorse poker, uh, publicly. So that happened and because of the charity work and other stuff that I was doing, uh, the government took notice and the Ministry of Child and Women Development in India approached me while I was at WSOP. I still remember they called me and they were like, we want to give you an award. And I just thought to myself that no, they don't mean it. Like it's just something random happening, you know. And then it just kept getting bigger and bigger. Then they told me that I'm like the first lady of India to do something Um uh, wow. In a gender, um, you know, male-dominated field. Because if you think about it, in India, there are a lot of women, they are just holding back from doing a lot of things. Sure. So for them, a lot of people, so some people all over the world, a few people also think, look at poker as gambling. So, you know, when they see someone, a girl, they see a person like me, and then they think that, okay, if she can do it, I can do it. And and why am I even sick? Why do I have second thoughts on my dreams? You know, when someone ha has such bizarre teams and they can, you know, achieve them, then why not me? So I just feel that that I'm sure is very encouraging 
And just to be clear, this is a award, an award that actually means something, Joe. Not like any of the tat that you've won at various poker award ceremonies over the years. Yeah, it was amazing. I actually happened, I got to see the president's house, and uh, they gave us a tour of the Rashtrapati Bhavan, and all the women and me, and we got to see all the rooms where such important history went down, and then just sitting respectfully and taking that honor as a poker player. It was just so amazing. So sorry. <laughs> well, no, it's no. That's that's exactly what I wanted to hear. I mean, it, it was still an honor to go receive this award, unlike it would be for me to go to the White House at this point. Um, Biscan, uh, I, I think that this is. Uh, I forget where I was going because I was trying to make a, a political joke, and then I got really hung up. Uh, <laughs> oh, the reason why I think that this is even more impressive too is that, like, look, you you won an award in a country with, that has how many how many people living in it. <laughs> billions joe billions, billions of, of people. people that's what i mean you win something in america you get an honor right you're beating out 300 million people muscan beat out half of billions of people 50 percent of billions of people that's a fucking gigantic honor i mean i'm, I'm interested to know what is the deal with the poker scene in india I mean, how, and how has it changed in the kind of four or five years since you started playing uh, it's really booming. It's growing and people really enjoy it there. And uh, we used to play other card games. So around every festival around Diwali, uh, we used to play card games. It was like a thing. It was like a tradition, have parties and everyone's doing it. So now people enjoy poker more and everyone's watching it. They have their respect for the game, which my father had when I when I first saw poker, when I was a kid next to my dad, he was watching poker. He, he doesn't even touch cards. And he was like, you know, really, really respecting all the moves and saying look at that look at that and I was like you know thinking to myself that oh, obviously I'll never do that in my life right like it's just something I have to forget then after a few years I saw poker after dark yeah and I saw uh, Phil Ivy and all these people battled out then I you know started playing free roles and that's it like you know I was just like this is so amazing this is this is competition this is uh, like you know how in when you do when you're a stockbroker or when you're doing any important job you need to be multitasking you need to be ahead of, on top of everything so it's something similar it gives you a, a rush and it makes your mind exercise so i really like it it's like a sport competitive sport i think it would have been amazing if muskan when she received this award was like uh, it's a great honor to all the people of india it's a great honor to receive this award by the way uh plan poker stars use sign up code muskan can you imagine <laughs> Can you imagine if like half a billion people signed up with your code? Oh my God, you'd just be, I know we don't do them anymore, but she would just be like rolling in it. Oh my goodness. You know, you'd uh, be surprised when I met the other 99 women, they were all like, listen, we were like searching about, we were Googling you last night and my husband loves to play poker and like he's asked me to teach, like he's like, oh, you have to teach me. And I was like, of course, like come on please learn you know it's something you really enjoy it's something you can do at home it's really weird and play we, on poker stars it's, <laughs> it's really weird because we look at countries around the world and we see like when kind of the poker boom hit and obviously here in the united kingdom it was a long time ago roughly the same time as the u.s and we had that huge peak in like the mid-2000s and after that it plateaued and then dipped but then you've got somewhere like latin america like brazil for example where we still feel like we're on the upward curve and i get the impression that india is very similar if anything it's probably further behind brazil and that kind of wave is almost just starting and it's very legit to be honest like even like the 
to people who are fighting uh, to make this like completely getting completely out of the gray area are all like top professionals who really enjoy poker and like very soon it's going to be mainstream in India. That's what I think that, you know, it's going to happen for sure because looking at how things are moving around, like now there are like so many poker sites in India and there are like so many giveaways, so many promotions and, yeah. you know, it's the best time to be a poker player in India right now because of the competition amongst the sites and because of whatever the promotions that are happening right now. I and think now would be a good time for me to announce the fact that I'm go I'm relocating James to take <laughs> advantage of the uh, the lucrative poker bonuses. I'm relocating to Nagpur. <laughs> no, India. come to Goa or New Delhi. <laughs> Why you can have like your what, What's frightening is I don't believe for one second that you would relocate to take advantage <laughs> of a bonus code. But if you thought, hey, this game is going to be popular there and I could be famous with a, in a country with a huge population, you would. With a half a billion beautiful women? Absolutely. Goa <laughs> sounds good. New Delhi, Old Delhi. I love sandwiches. It doesn't matter. Um, so what are the plans for the next few months? I mean, obviously, India is the, the country that you're representing. You're the Pokestars ambassador for India. But are you going to be traveling the circuit? Are we going to see you at more live events? Obviously, uh, the recent event at the Hippodrome, you were there playing the London Megastack. <laughs> yeah, I was. Um, so for the like for these few months like next week i'm going to the world series of poker of i'm really excited i'm doing the whole thing and i'm going to be vlogging from there as well and so i'm looking forward to that i'm looking forward to gpl which is going to be in uh, the india season one and so if the winner winning team gets a platinum pass all the team members get it so i'm really excited uh, to win that one <laughs> is there a is there a, a host for india gpl yet because i do have some GPL on my resume. So why don't you just like come, like please talk to Alex, get this sorted out. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to GPL and um, a while back home, I'm going to be working with, you know, Pokestars School and uh, also working with Responsible Gaming with AIGF, which is uh, uh, like a body uh, in India. For, it's a gaming federation. Yeah. So I'm going to be working with them, working with all that. So it's really exciting. I love the fact that the GPL is back in India. So, Joe, you wouldn't be put off by the 14-hour final tables or the 23-hour broadcast that you had to do in Vegas a couple of years ago? I mean, it just depends on how famous I'm going to get from it. I okay. mean, look, I... Look, Look, obviously, I've got aspirations for Hollywood. I will certainly take Bollywood. <laughs> and after the World Series, any other live events? Will we? Will you, will you potentially return to Barcelona four years later? Okay, I'm not promising, but I would love to. It's like, it's there. It's on my vision board. I want to do it this year. Well, obviously, it'd be great to see you there. But in the meantime, enjoy Vegas and good luck with all the stuff you've got to do in the coming months. It sounds like you're going to be busy. Uh, Muskan, thank you for dropping by. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Bye. Okay, our second movie review of the show. This is the one we put to a public vote. Uh, you 
The Poker in the Ears listeners wanted us to revisit The Gambler from 1974. I say revisit. For me, this is a retrospective review. It's a film I've seen a few times, actually. I own it on DVD. Um, Joe, is this your first uh, appraisal of this Carol Rice movie from the mid-1970s? Uh, sort of, because I did see The Gambler with Mark Wahlberg like the Woof. day after Christmas a couple of years ago. And uh, I hey, that movie did have like a couple of great scenes in it. But yes, the movie, that movie as a whole was a bit of a woof. I kind of felt this movie felt like watching Black Mirror to me um, <laughs> in that it was I thought it was very good, but it made me sick to my stomach. Oh, yeah. It made me uncomfortable the entire time. Yep. And the entire time I was like, no, 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 no. Why? Why am I being forced to watch this? It was also I don't know if you uh, notice. Well, obviously, you know this, but. The guy who wrote it, James Toback, has been in a bit of hot water lately. Um, he has been one of those guys put on the forefront of the Me Too movement. I didn't even realize it was written by him. Yeah. So that kind of, you know, I kind of went into it being like, okay, well, this person obviously has some demons of their own. Well, it's partly uh, autobiographical. Toback was a uh, writer and professor who had a gambling problem. So there's a lot of his life story in this. The film, by the way, is about a character called Axel Freed, played by James Kahn, who, by the way, is bloody brilliant. I mean, that's the one thing I will say about this film is that it just showcases Jimmy Kahn's talents as an actor. And along with Thief, uh, the Michael Mann film from the early 80s, it's probably my favourite James Kahn performance. Um, I love the fact this film is just so rooted in that mid-1970s grit, dirt, downbeat style of cinema. Um, yes, it's a very uncomfortable film to watch. This is a university professor with a huge gambling problem. The film opens with him late night in an underground spieler, just walking from table to table, game to game, out of his league, losing, 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 until he runs up a debt of $44,000, which I imagine in 1974 is probably the equivalent of like half a million these days. So I did a little research. I watched this uh, with my friend Sam, and not only is it worth half a million these days, but uh, if you think about what minimum wage was then... Uh, it was $2.30 an hour. And so, what is it now? Uh, now it is more than double that. It depends what state you're in. But uh, it's about – it might be triple that. It's a little – it's it's six-something an hour, $7 an hour most places. So, um, you know, that's that's just minimum wage. You hear him say in the movie that he makes $1,500 a month as a, uh, as a college professor. So – you know, that just sort of gives you some perspective as to how much he's down. But obviously, the you know, they they do a really great job in the screenwriting. And maybe it's autobiographical and maybe there's not a ton of creativity to it. But every time this guy has an out, he gets rescued by his parents. He gets rescued by his mother. He gets rescued by getting lucky. He gets rescued by getting lucky again. And he never fucking pays off the debt and it's infuriating and of it's course. sickening it's i mean that moment when he's driving away and he has to go to work and it's awful because he basically drives straight to work to lecture after losing nearly 50 grand at this spieler and he stops off on the way and starts trying to bet 20 dollars against these guys playing basketball and they're like we can't even afford that, so we'll, we'll do 10. He goes, fine, fine, fine. Because he just constantly needs the rush. He needs what he calls the juice. And 
there's a the classic line in the movie is I like the uncertainty of it. I like the threat of losing. But the reality is, as his bookie played by Paul Sorvino, points out to him later on, no, no, that's the thing you're addicted to. You are addicted to losing. It's that need to be punished. And the film explores that so well. Let's be clear, Joe, you and I have been around casinos. You and I have been around the gambling industry for so long. How many people like James Kahn's character do we know or have we seen or have we encountered in the last 10 years? It's it's hard to spot them uh, unless you spend a lot of time around them uh, because it's such a crazy thing, right? It's like the, you know the people out there who like getting kicked in the balls. You're like, how could anyone actually enjoy that? This does exist for people mentally and emotionally uh, getting beat up in this way. And I will say that I've gone through some some periods of degening out uh, myself. Uh, the run I went on at the bike. This past weekend, I bought in three separate times being like, you know what? I got it this time. And I think that many of us who have gambled have tasted it. Uh, But luckily what happens is once we step out of there, we go, holy shit, that was stupid. I can't do that again. When we find a way out of it, when we, um, you know, but uh, yes, we do know people like this. And there's a genuine, actual, psychological chemical thing that happens that fires off uh endorphins or whatever you want to call them in your brain when you lose that they say are more powerful than the endorphins when you win and if you happen to have a particular taste of these endorphins it's fucking wild yeah um apart from james khan i think the supporting cast across the board is pretty impressive as well even small how hot is how hot is uh his girlfriend what's her name lauren Lauren uh Lauren Hutton is Best known just... for American Gigolo with uh, with Richard Gere. But here's the question. Why the fuck is she with him? He is absolutely horrible to her throughout the film. He is a bastard pretty much to everyone. He is not a nice character. You talk about the fact, Joe, that you struggle with movies where the lead character is not a straightforward hero, where they're not someone that you can necessarily like. How did you cope with this film? Because didn't you just want to punch this guy in the face for the entire one hour and 40 minutes? Yeah, of course I did. But you see... Ed- just like we've known people like him who are just really sick degenerates and, and genuinely need help. Uh, I've seen a million relationships like this where there's a, a girl with a young girl with limitless potential and who is uh, just got her whole future in front of her uh, and is somehow and for some reason attracted to some garbage person the only positive Uh, thing that happens in this film by the way is that she does finally get rid of him and when he tries the most uncomfortable scene in the film is that moment when he goes to her apartment roughs her up and then comes onto her but fortunately she pushes him away the fact that she gets away from him is the one good thing that happens in this film yeah and so uh you know but we've seen this before and you know and i do think that uh it's not it's not an uncommon thing where we he is charming and he is very smart, and I think that sometimes in relationships, people see they want to see only the good parts. And I found, uh, th- I think there's a lot of people that can watch this movie and think that it's unrealistic how he never learns his lesson, because it is so unfathomable to some people. But I and I and I know that it is realistic with a very small. Uh, section of people. I found uh, this bad relationship to be one one of the easier to swallow things about this oh, movie. No, what I, the, I, 
I, I, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's not plausible. It's just very yeah. frustrating and just, sure. uh, uh, no, I mean, the, the run he goes on and what he does, his actions are completely believable. Um, I was talking about some of the smaller characters as well, like Carmine the Debt Collector or Bernie the Loan Shark, that awful character, the monkey, who's a kind of uh, pimp, bookmaker and degenerate all in one. Jimmy the Bookie, who he has the 50k bet on the Lakers with. Again, he goes to Vegas. He has this sick run. As you would point out, he gets ridiculously lucky. There is a fantastic moment in this film where he is playing the blackjack, blackjack. Yeah. and he has got 18. And the dealer automatically assumes he's going to stand on 18. So basically goes to play his own hand. And he goes, wait. And he doubles down on 18. And Lauren Hutton says, are you crazy? His response, blessed. And he says to the dealer, confidently, give me the three. And sure enough, it's a three. And it's that moment that he talked about earlier on when you know, when however unlikely, however improbable it is, you just know. But because he's addicted to losing, having gone on that sick run in Vegas, he then bets it all on the Lakers. They lose by one point and he sat in the bath listening to the game on the radio. His face, that realization he's lost $50,000 by one point is just a fantastic moment of cinema. I actually, what's funny is that when he said he is going to go take a bath and I commented to my friend, I go, he's clearly going to take the radio into the bathroom. And I was like, and then if they lose, you just knock it in, um, which obviously this character wouldn't do. But that's my first thought is that like, well, like this guy should really maybe just end it all. Like he is just doing himself and nobody else any favors, but clear he doesn't and he doesn't even consider it. Yeah. Like I don't it's really bizarre that uh how well he deals with this stress. He really seems mostly unconcerned as well. He seems confident that he's going to find a way out of it, but also and we'll come to the last scene in the film in a moment because I think that's very telling and explains his mindset and why he's not really showing any fear in these situations. But we talk about how nasty he was to Lauren Hutton. He's also horrific to his mother. Oh, he starts yeah. off playing an overly aggressive competitive tennis match against her, literally demands the money from her, and then is horrible to her afterwards. And, of course, that money that she gives him specifically so he can pay off this debt, he then immediately gambles, betting on three separate basketball games. He loses all three. Um, and then comes what I think is possibly the hardest part of the movie to watch. We had the most uncomfortable scene, the scene with Lauren Hutton. Now we have the most depressing yeah. scene where he corrupts his student, the young basketball player, and forces him to basically take money to shave points off a game. And the realization that after he's done that, that this guy is now going to be a pawn for these nasty types who run these underground bookmakers and underground casinos. Like, great, we found a sports star who's got another year at college, is likely to make it to the pros, and we know is corruptible. He's now ours. We're going to own him. And this kid is never going to escape this web. Yeah, uh, now he's not only dragging down uh, his family financially, but he's ruining other people's lives, um, and which sort of leads into the ending yeah. of this movie. Which I think is a very bizarre scene, almost surreal scene in some senses, but actually makes so much sense. Because here is a character who we've explained needs to lose, needs to be punished. He's off the hook. He's basically paid off his debt, I'm sure he'll get into debt again, no time at all. But he needs that resolution. And 
he goes and puts himself in a situation where he upsets Huggy Bear, Antonio Fargas, <laughs> playing a pimp, and gets himself slashed across the face by a knife and is almost pleased that that's happened. And I think that's why, to echo your point, Joe, of the fact that at no point has he seemed at all worried about what these guys might do to him. He almost wants to be physically harmed because that's what he needs now. Losing money is not enough. He needs to be punished further and he actually needs that physical harm to happen to him to get that juice, to get that adrenaline rush, to feel that in some way he is, you know, suffering. And that's what he needs, his addiction to suffering. It's really funny because Huff and I used to call it the juice also. And I don't know if maybe somehow this term made it to us somehow through osmosis. But when we did our first summer in Vegas... Uh, covering the entire World Series of Poker. We were two bright-eyed, bushy-tailed uh, guys in our early 20s. And we started realizing that uh, when we got out of work, we didn't want to go to the movies anymore. We didn't want to go watch TV. We had to – we called it the juice. We had to have the juice. Normal things were no longer exciting to us to the point where I was a guy that had never played roulette in my life. I was getting out of work and playing roulette for hours, for hours – uh, before heading back to my room at Bellagio, my my second year at the World Series, there really is something to that. That that is a very addictive drug, and you will eventually find have to find ways to escalate that if you are in fact uh, dependent on it. And so, yeah, that made perfect sense. And I think watching it with my best friend Sam now, who doesn't have a single gambler's bone in his body <laughs> yeah. at all. When we go, when we go to Vegas, you know, he puts 20 bucks in wheel of fortune and then gets mad and wants to leave Vegas. Um, after he loses it. Meanwhile, I'm like, Hey, uh, how do I get a cash advance on my credit card? Um, so, uh, it, but if you're the kind of person that has tasted this at all, you can see it. You can see that the escalation, why it would go there as a study of the problem of gambling addiction and the type of personality, um, that, succumbs to that i think this film is almost unrivaled i appreciate it's a very uncomfortable watch it's not a film that you're going to find yourself watching again and again and again um but it's definitely worth exploring if you haven't seen it and you don't feel we've spoilt it for you i do think it's worth seeking out it's very very good and it is the subject of this week's superfan quiz one of them loves the ept knows it inside out and would do anything for the european poker tour the other one is Joe Stapleton. It's Superfan versus Stapes. Please welcome to Poker in the Ears, Mr. Colin Bradley. Greetings, Colin. Hello, sir. How are you? Good, Carl thank Dahl. you. What? Carl Dahl, what's going on, buddy? <laughs> I'm just at a service station at the moment. What? Why? Are you on a road trip? Or are you oh, yeah, in no, the middle? I'm just, just on my way home. Because technically we're recording after five o'clock, aren't we? Yeah. What are you on your way home from? Uh, so I live and work in Nottingham. Um, I work as a manager for a charity. So I've just been at a meeting and I'm yeah, heading home. We have a lot of uh, people who work for the charity industry seems to be thriving in the United <laughs> Kingdom. Uh, it's doing well. Lots of uh, problems to address, Joe. Uh, yeah, we sure do. And we have a lot of people from the Nottingham area. I assume that you have from time to time frequented the poker club in that region. I have. Yeah, it's very good. Very good. The trouble is, they're all really good. At play there, so. <laughs> yes, 
That is the problem. Now, Colin, I believe that you applied for this having not seen the film The Gambler before. I hope you were able to seek out a copy and I hope you enjoyed the experience of watching this classic film. It was certainly interesting. I thought uh, Mark Wahlberg was very good. Oh, no, he's watched the wrong one. <laughs> uh, no, I'm trolling you. I didn't really know. It was, uh, yeah, I've not seen it before. Um, it's pretty gritty, isn't it? It is very gritty. We've just had a long discussion about it, concluding with uh, James Kahn getting his face slashed by the, uh, by the pimp's yeah. knife. Um, so here's the deal, Colin, because... This is our chosen subject because you are complying with our request. You are competing for a one hundred nine dollar, one hundred nine euro, I should say, EPT Barcelona satellite ticket. Plus, we will find a piece of Pokestar swag to throw into the mix as well. I have got ten questions in front of me. Uh, they are all multiple choice. I'm sure you know the rules. If you can nail the question without the options, two points. If you need the choices, one point. As you are the superfan, as you are our guest, we will let you pick first. It's coming sevens now and again, isn't it? Question yeah, every once in a while. Number seven. <laughs> okay, I should point out, by the way, that the questions do go chronologically in the sequence of the movie. So oh. the questions uh, after five are the latter half of the movie. Questions one to five are the first half of the movie. Um, so this is during the later stages, just before the Vegas trip, when Billy asks Axel where he got $44,000 from, what is his response? He won it. Would you like the options? Yes, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Does I'm he say? That that's, that's, that's usually a clue, Colin. <laughs> Does he say, I killed somebody for it, I robbed a bank, I borrowed it from my mother, I won it at the track? I killed somebody for it. That's what he says for a point. No more mulligans, Colin. Next time, your first chance, <laughs> your first answer will be accepted as your only answer. Uh, Joe, let's see if we can get you on the board. Which question would you like? Oh, let's just start at the beginning. Question number one. It's the opening scene of the movie, The Underground Spieler. What is the limit on the blackjack table in the underground casino? I'm just going to talk this out for a second. He wants he wants to play 4,000, I think. I'll take the choices. Is it $1,000, $2,000, $3,000, or $5,000? $1,000. It's actually 2000 He's trying to play three. In fact, he got away with yeah. playing three until Hibbs intervened and said, hey, 2K limit to protect yourself. And trust me, he needs that protection. <laughs> uh, your second question, Colin. Two through ten, bar seven. I'll go two. Question two. Again, from the opening of the film, when Axel first bets on roulette, which black number comes up? Of course he's betting red. I think I know this, but I might have to take the options. Should I go for it? I'm gonna go for it. Eight black. It's 17 black. <sighs> Joe, where would you like? Well, to we've hey, whoa, whoa, whoa! Oh, no. We got a real, we got a real gambler on our hands. We have indeed. <laughs> Doesn't want the choices. Would have heard that eight wasn't even an option. So possibly could have got it. <laughs> he he needed the juice. Uh, Colin's <laughs> only up one nothing. So uh, Joe, if you can nail your next question, you could take the lead. Let's do it. Do you want to go chronologically? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna take always take the earliest number. Okay, question three. When Spencer observes Axel's unkempt appearance, what humorous reason does Axel give for being unshaved and disheveled? Uh, I'll take the choices. He robbed a bank. He lost a boxing match. He took over the country. 
He got buried at the bookies for ten grand. Uh, he lost the boxing one. No, he took over the country. Would you like question <laughs> four, Colin? Yes, I would, please. Axel is teaching his students about the writings of which Russian author? It's just how I pronounce it. Dostoevsky or... Dostoevsky. I'm going to give you the two points. Congratulations. So you now have a 3 nothing lead. Joe, question five. What does Carmine give Axel to hold before he trashes the apartment of the guy who's late on his payments? A, uh, a, a model ship. Correct, for two points. Colin, you still have a one-point lead. This is your penultimate question. Would you like question six? Yes, please. Which actor has a small role as the stubborn bank clerk who demands two forms of ID from Axel's mother? Well, I'll have to have the options on that. Is it Willem Dafoe, Scott Glenn, James Woods, or M. Emmett Walsh? This is going to be a complete guess. The Walsh guy. M. Emmett Walsh? He is in the movie, but he appears in the Vegas scene. It's I've got James Woods. So, Joe, let's see if you can take the lead with your penultimate question. question. Piece of candy. Question eight, by any chance? Yeah, question eight works for me. In downtown Vegas, what is the third game Axel plays after visiting the craps table and the roulette table? He then plays... Baccarat. Correct, for two points, and Joe has a one-point lead. Colin, you need this next question. I'm going to give you the choice, nine or ten. Ten. Question ten. Spencer is told that he doesn't have to lose the game, but he must ensure they don't win by how many points? Eight. Would you like the options? Yeah, can I have the options? Four, five, six, or seven? That it's seven. It is seven. So we have a tied game. Joe, if you get your final question correct, you have won Superfan versus Stapes for the second time in three weeks. Uh, is there a tiebreaker prepared? There is a tiebreaker prepared. Axel bets $50,000 on the LA Lakers. Who are their opponents in the game? The Harlem Globetrotters. Final answer. No, it's actually the Seattle Supersonic. So we do go to the tiebreaker. You're going to love this tiebreaker. And Colin, I'm going to let you go first. There is a minor character in this movie known as the monkey, who has a very distinctive laugh. Please provide your best impersonation of the monkey's laugh. <laughs> Joe, can you do better than that? <laughs> Colin, you nailed it. You are the winner, yeah. and you get the 109 euro Ipti Barcelona ticket, and you're going to get a piece of Pokestar swag. That, by the way, awesome. was a perfect impersonation of the monkey's <laughs> laugh. Uh, Colin, thank you very thank much you. for taking the time to watch the movie. Thank you for coming on the podcast, and thank you for all of your support. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Colin. Good, good stuff, buddy. Nice, nice job on the impression. I don't do impressions. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That will be the biggest buy-in I've had. So obviously, I'm going to. Oh, cool, that. man! What a I'll pleasure. Barcelona. Well, my babies, that is almost it for this week's show and for this season's show. We are going down for the summer months. We are on hiatus. We will be back. On August 15th, that is two 
months from now. If we're going to be precise, it's two months and one day. But hey, let's round it and call it two months. I mean, look, I like a break as much as the next guy, but I'm going to miss you all. I'm going to miss you, my babies. Well, you've got a busy summer ahead. I'm going on three separate vacations, so I'm you really looking forward to the summer. Frick. Are you serious? Three vacations? Joe will be in Vegas, which means when we come back, we'll recap the World Series of Poker. We'll look ahead to EPT Barcelona. I do want to tease everyone, Joe, and just let them know that we've got some really fun stuff planned for the back end of the year. There's every reason to suspect that Poker in the Ears will still be here till at least the end of 2018, and and I think we're going to close out the year in style. By the way, one piece of unfinished business. Congratulations to Ray Say at Dirty Outs on Twitter for winning the movie poster Photoshop contest. Wow. I joined Finton and Spraggy on their stream on Monday on Twitch. They judged the contest. It was a no-brainer. It was a great effort. And they snap called that Ray Say should get the Pokestar swag bag. Yeah, as soon as I, that was a late entry. And as soon as I saw that over the weekend, I was like, this fucking poster is cool he did a really great job there were other good submissions too by the way but unfortunately his was just uh fantastic Blow, as blew, i said yeah. to finton and spraggy there wasn't a bad entry we only had a handful of entries but everyone went to a decent effort they were all good but clearly there was a clear winner yeah and uh speaking of spraggy uh he and i were gonna play some video games after this and we're gonna stream it i know that uh you guys are listening to this podcast not in real time but uh, there's a there's a co-op game that just came out where t- you have to break out of prison. Joe, I need co-op. you to put in the practice at PUBG so we can get back to being a duo, so we can get back to doing that again. Look, I, what I'm willing, what I was gonna say is, now I don't want to get up at six in the morning anymore on Wednesdays. Uh, now that we're not doing the show, but if you can carve out like an hour or two on your Wednesday evenings, let's do this. I- I can still play on Wednesday. I can reserve Wednesday mornings still for playing some video games. I don't want to do it at 6 a.m., but like maybe at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., uh, I could probably do that um, at least for the next week or two till the World Series starts. I don't know after that. But, let's make uh, it happen. you got to put some practice say- in, though, because last time we played, you didn't even know how to switch a gun to automatic. I didn't know that you had to switch <laughs> the gun to automatic. That was the problem. Anyway... We're going to have some fun over the summer. We'll be back in two months. I'm sure there will be lots of things to tell you about. We should probably do like two full recap shows uh, would be my guess, considering uh, there's going to be home games. There's going to be World Series. There's going to be stuff that happens in poker news that we're just going to have to. Daniel's Masterclass. I mean, come on. How fucking big a news is that? Like Daniel Negreanu. Well, let's be honest. We normally get Daniel on at least once a year. Normally it's before the summer break. Let's aim for Daniel post-summer break. Yeah, let's see how his numbers are doing for Masterclass. Let's see how much more fucking money that guy has after this uh, deal he struck. Anyway, that is it. Uh, Please subscribe to the show. Tell your friends. Get us some more listeners. Leave some comments. Give us some likes. Give us some upvotes. Swipe right on us. Whatever it fucking takes. Uh, We need your love, but we will be back in two months. Two months from now. Until then, for James Hardigan, I am Joe Stapleton. Smell you later. Have a good day. Absolute debacle. I'm fuming.